Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news over here this week. We have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash late night. Go over there, sign up at any tier, and you'll have access to it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash late night. Now, enjoy the show. Gabby, have you gotten new tattoos since the last time that I've seen you? This is a great question for me to ask on an audio medium. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have the video up too. Your video is Patreon only, right? So Patreon subs get that good, good content. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> is like this one? Oh, this is new. Oh, that's gorgeous. It's a card captor card from the oh. anime. <laughs> <laughs> You know, anime tattoos are a cool thing. Thank you. Sorry. It's kind of weird to show you like this, but <laughs> it is a very difficult angle to show people a tattoo at. It's just like, hey, do you want to smell my armpit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got it done right before COVID lockdown last year. And ever since then, I've been like, I just want more tattoos. Yeah, this knife tap for me, that was January 2020. Nice. Have you been thinking about more tattoos that you want to get now that like COVID is starting to lift and like people are starting to get tattoos again? I've been wanting to get like a snake like here on my wrist area like to wrap around. But also I have a friend who I collabed with on some flash designs and she's an amazing like stick and poke artist. So I've been trying to think like my so close friend is going to tattoo me. I feel like this has to have like emotional, symbolic significance of our friendship. So like, I've just been sort of in choice paralysis on that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I think a snake around the wrist is a pretty nice gesture, right? That's pretty sick. Yeah. yeah. It's like you're you're kind of entwined with each other. She would also do a gorgeous snake. This is true. Brian, what's going to be your post-quarantine tattoo? Oh, so I am currently untattooed. I have often thought about if I were to get a tattoo, what would I get? I don't trust my future self to like the same stuff that my current self does enough to actually get anything tattooed. That's an interesting thing about getting tattoos of things that you like, where the longevity of the interest doesn't really matter because it's so about like a specific period in your life. Mm -hmm. Like it really does feel like a passport sticker for your life. And if you get something that looks cool, it's going to look sick forever. Yeah. As long as you take care of it. But I mostly asked you that question knowing that you wouldn't get a tattoo. I was sort of asking it facetiously so you could, I was lobbing it to you so you could be like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to get a chess piece of Tweety Bird or something. <laughs> Tweety Bird smoking weed. You know what? If I did get a tattoo, I probably would pick, like there's kind of a defining equation that I discovered in physics. That's probably what I would do. Is, Whoa. is that one, which is not even worth explaining right now what it is, oh. but it's very simple and it's like three words long, basically, if you were to type it out. What are the words? It's all, it's all a bunch of symbols. Oh, okay. Again, not even really worth explaining what it means, but it was a big result I had when I was in grad school and kind of defined a lot of my career. So it would probably be that. It's also definitely right. So <laughs> that's, that's a big part of it. I had a friend in grad school who had a tattoo on his shoulder of a Feynman diagram. Does either of you know what a Feynman diagram is? No, no idea. <laughs> it is a graphical thing that particle physicists use to describe the interactions of particles. So there's a famous one, which is used to describe how two charged particles interact through electromagnetism, which is two straight lines 
which so imagine kind of a like an X like that, like two V's on the okay. side, and then a wiggly line in the middle. And that's two, whatever, say electrons exchanging a photon and talking, whatever. Anyway, he had a tattoo of this very famous Feynman diagram on his shoulder. And during one of our quantum mechanics classes in grad school, went to show the instructor, you know, physics professor at UCSD, because we were doing Feynman diagrams. He's like, hey, check this out. And the professor goes, well, they got that wrong. <laughs> oh, no. And the guy was like, what? <laughs> and then the professor was like, no, man, I'm just kidding. It's all oh, good. That's evil. It was pretty great. I mean, he reversed it fast enough that it was just a funny joke. But for five seconds, this guy was not happy. I will say, too, on the topic of like being afraid of getting a tattoo that you'll regret is that once you get your first tattoo, that goes out the window. Yes. Because then you're like, oh, whatever. Fuck. Tattoos look cool. I don't care. Most of my tattoos I still love very much, but it's all about how it looks, less mm -hmm. so about the meaning, right. you know? And so I'm a lot more willing to just get stupid tattoos now, now that, that I have several than I did my first time. Every single person I know who has gotten at least one tattoo, the switch flips immediately because on that first one you spend forever like, oh, it's going to be my first and only tattoo, like with meeting. And then it's like, oh, Friday the 13th, let me go get a stupid fucking little guy. Yeah, like, that's what I have. I have a, a little skull. <laughs> Friday the 13th, several years ago, my friend and I went to get $13 tattoos. And uh -huh. they just have a book of like random yeah. designs. And so I picked this. It's a skull with a party hat that says 13. Oh, that's fine. It's kind of ugly. I don't really care about it that much. It becomes like a part of you. Like it almost feels like a body acceptance yeah. thing. Like if you feel weird about your body, it's like you you cannot change much about it, but you can change like the art that you put on it. And then it's like a fun collection of like really sick art that becomes who you are. And that like, I stare at my tattoos a lot and I'm like, damn, the day that I die, I'm going to have these on me. Wild. Yeah. I do have a lot of kind of body acceptance issues. And I wonder if that would help with that. I think you getting an Audrey drawing would be the cutest thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Some of those would be pretty fun. Yeah. Especially since right now her drawings are kind of terrifying. As kids drawing uh, should be. Because she's seven. <laughs> Perfect. They're great. They look like little demons all the time. Everyone needs a demon tattoo. Yeah. Especially when it's supposed to be a picture of me. And I have like fangs and I'm just <laughs> black eye pits. Yeah. That's a good idea. Probably, yeah. If I had to get one that wasn't that equation thing, an Audrey drawing is the way to go. She would love it. She would be so stoked. Oh. I feel like I'd almost have to tell her that it wasn't for a tattoo. Otherwise, she'd be a little too excited yeah. about it and do something really crazy. Yeah. And then you would be contract bound to have to get it. And you have to let your seven-year-old choose the location. Yes. Oh, no. Well, she's not picking the location. I'll tell you that. She's going to be like right <laughs> here in the middle of your forehead. She'd probably be like, Daddy, your butt. Put it on your butt. <laughs> butt. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you two, you know each other through game stuff, I assume. Is that correct? Indie games, yes. We're both gamers, professional gamers. <laughs> I mean, more than just gamers, right? Yeah. Well, okay, so Gabby, you and I met in person in the GDC Speakers Lounge like two, three years ago. Yeah, several years ago. I'm assuming you did a talk at that GDC? I think so, Yes. Yeah. We were in the speakers lounge. In the speakers lounge. I feel like yeah. you could fake your way in there pretty easily. It is super easy to fake your way into a speaker's lounge. She's like, oh, I have a talk on ludonarrative dissonance in like 10 minutes. Can I come in here and drink your free coffee? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And all the volunteers are like 
teenagers who cannot afford GDC passes because they're no one can. nobody they're can. absurdly expensive to get into these passes. the way you get in is they're like hey would you like to do a talk and I'm like yes I would like to spend months freaking out about this but also this talk is technically worth like eight hundred dollars yeah yeah because GDC is prohibitively expensive held in a prohibitively expensive city that is not easy to get to for international people and the you know you can cover the ticket but then you got to deal with staying in San Francisco and paying for food and also paying for really insane uh, hotel hostel or Airbnb prices. Yeah. It's an expensive affair. For a whole damn week. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of people will volunteer to get that free pass. And those volunteers are so tired because like a week-long conference brutal. is exhausting. With gamers. <laughs> so tiring. Packed with gamers. Yeah. Yeah, that was the one where Google, is it Stadia? Is that how you say it? Yes. Where it was just like all Stadia funded. And it's just like, this feels so antithetical to a conference that runs on indie game shit. What is Stadia? Stadia was a short-lived Google like subscription streaming game. Cloud. Cloud. Software. I think both of us are just saying words. <laughs> you can tell that it's really good because I have no idea what it is. And also it shut down. But it was a gaming thing. It was a gaming thing that was generally bad for smaller game developers because it's like, oh, let's slam all this stuff into a you know streaming service and it's just sort of like shafting everybody. So I remember that GDC, nobody was excited about it except for the Google reps who were very aggressive about selling you on Stadia. Right, because they were being paid to be excited about it. Yeah. But I remember that one fondly. We met in the speaker's room and I remember it was like, oh, hey, it's really nice to meet you, person who's made a game that we both like. Yeah, yeah. Right? But then it was like, hey, horror movies? And then our yes. whole conversation <laughs> was just horror movies for like two hours. Which was delightful. I think talking to you got me to watch Ginger Snaps, which yeah. is the best. I can't believe you hadn't seen Ginger Snaps before that. I know. Canadian classic, yeah. yeah. Talking with you got me to watch Martyrs. Yo! Which, okay. Okay, please, go off. <laughs> I'm going to sound like an absolute psychopath. <laughs> this is what happens every time anyone's like, I liked Martyrs. <laughs> It was really good, but it was also not as shocking as I thought it would be. And I think the problem was I watched the trailer. And the trailer is one of those trailers where it spoils the entire plot of the movie. And considering that that movie feels like three movies, three exhausting movies shoved into one movie. Because I went in totally blind other than seeing years of Reddit comments like, man, Martyrs is the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) It's not even that it's scary. It's just like stressful and emotionally draining and like existentially draining. Can you briefly tell me what this film is? I don't know anything about it. Martyrs is a seminal entry in the neo-French extremism canon. And neo-French extremism was this big movement that was just like, hey, you guys like gore? You want really fucked up gore? We're just going to do that. So among the likes of Inside or High Tension, which are both okay movies, Martyrs is like considered one of the big ones. Okay, Martyrs is of the same ilk. Yes. Oh, did you say Martyrs or Murders? Martyrs. Martyrs. I thought you said murders. Murders is a great name for a horror movie. (laughs) Oh, right. Yes. Okay. I've heard of martyrs. Yeah. I thought it was just a movie called Murders, which was just a bunch of murders. At least that's like streamlined. Very the title. Yeah. That that movie sounds like it would be a tight 90. Just like murder, 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 murder. Yeah. Well, what's weird is that you each said martyrs probably 10 times. And each time I was like, oh, murders, 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 murders. Yep. This is on brand. Murders, 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 murders. Yep. Cool. This is the beauty of uh, recording is that everything's kind of like fuzzy in the in-between. 
And I also uh, like mumble a lot. So I probably did say no, no, it was You're amongst mumblers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but for those who don't know, please keep explaining what this movie is. If you're like, I don't like jump scare. Like my favorite horror movie is A Quiet Place. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. I disagree, but it's fine. This is not the movie for you. If you're on the iceberg of fucked up shit, then this movie's for you. Because that's the movie that ruined me for all other horror movies. Because that was the first like really extreme one that I watched. And then I was like, how could I ever get my like cortisol levels up? up? Like I'm going to be chasing that dragon forever. Mm. Yeah. Martyrs sets the bar really high. All the time. It's several different horror like genre clusters. It starts out being a home invasion thing, sort of. Mm -hmm. And then it just keeps... They're goddamn fly in my apartment. Sorry. Is it the same fly? That's not the same (laughs) fly, is it? (sighs) Brian, it is the same fly. Buy a fly swatter. no. Do you not have a fly swatter? I don't, because I need the satisfaction of clamping them out of existence with my bare hands. Okay, fine. Is maybe a good, like, bug dog... Like, will she see a bug and eat it? Or is she kind of indifferent to bugs? No, no. There was literally a mouse got into my kitchen. I heard nothing from maybe. Chihuahuas are supposed to go get rats. Instead, I have to get the rat. (laughs) And then I carry him down in a little cup. Like, oh, fuck, I better not kill this mouse. And I I escort him onto the street. And then he runs directly into traffic. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good metaphor for parenting. Yeah, yeah. But no, maybe he's not not good about that kind of stuff, but she will stare at things intently as if they are bugs, but it's not there, which always creeps Mm -hmm. me out because she'll do the intent, like staring at something and following it and then like follows it to on me. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What is this spirit shit? Rachel was saying that she got to meet maybe in person. Yes, she did. Last night. So Gabby Rachel is my wife and we have never met Layden's dog before, but... They were at an event last night, and Rachel got to say hi to Maybe. So cute. Rachel was such a trooper with holding Maybe or alternately holding my food so I could hold Maybe. Mm-hmm. And this will be one of my peaches later, but there were like eight dogs at the party that I was at last night. Yes. Running wild. And Maybe loves people, has a hard time with dogs. So she was just like in a rictus of terror and was just, you know, going from arms to arms. So our friend Jules, Aaron, was like a perfect little caretaker. Like he swaddled her in my flannel and was holding her like sweet little baby Jesus. Mm -hmm. I asked Rachel if maybe was barking and she said no. And I said, oh, that makes sense. We weren't recording the podcast. Yeah, yeah. She did great. I was really, really proud of her. And also when you're at a party and you bring your dog, who's really cute, you don't got to talk about yourself at all. People come to you to see the dog and then you can just be like, is my dog perfect? I don't need to disclose anything about my life. Hi, I'm going to drink this beer and you're going to pet my dog. And this is the agreement. (laughs) Well, she had a good time. Gabby, how has this pandemic treated you? What have you been up to? I feel like that's the question everyone dreads the most coming out of this. I don't want anybody to ask me, so I'm sorry that I just cursed you with this. I'm going to eat my cheese stick. I don't dread the question. It's more just like I have no updates. I have nothing to share. Literally nothing. I haven't done shit. Hey. <laughs> just being depressed and hiding indoors. And we were talking about this before we started recording was I'm in Canada and Canada has been fucking terrible about dealing with COVID, like the whole country. So weird. And so we didn't start getting our vaccines until 
much later than you all in the States. And only recently in Ontario did we start getting our second vaccines. Oh, And it's like almost as hard as trying to find a PS5 is <laughs> getting second vaccines for yourself. And so I'm vaccinated. My par- partner's vaccined. We're currently waiting for their two weeks to like go yep, by yep. until you're whatever fully sauced or whatever. So, um, but we're, (laughs) so, but it's been okay. I don't feel like I have any cool updates because I think that's perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. We were all inside for a year. Of course, nobody has updates. I feel like a lot of people were also like, oh, this is going to be the year I make my magnum opus, but I don't know about y'all, but like spending all day in a creative field. And then when you're done for the day, you're like, I don't really feel like making more creative things. Like, it's been so exhausting to just yeah, exist. do the, the one thing. Yeah. You know? So I feel like I haven't really made anything cool. Yeah, not sure why I thought global stress and tragedy for a year was going to somehow make me better at art. <laughs> it's not really the, <laughs> right? the conditions you want. Well, okay. Have you consumed media over the past year? Oh, yes. Okay. Tons. If this is the thing we're going to talk about. Basically, this podcast is talking about literally whatever you want to talk about. We're just hanging out. And also, I do <laughs> later want to ask you some questions about your oeuvre and your work, because I think if people listening to this are not familiar with your work, we should get them into it. Is now the time to introduce the show? It feels like a natural time to do it. Oh, are we going to be professionals? Yeah. Well, especially since we could at least hint at this. So everybody... This is Leighton Knight with Brian Wecht. Over here, we have Leighton Gray. Hi, that's me. That voice that you just heard was Brian Wecht from the title of the show. That's me. Mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Gabby. (laughs) Do I? (laughs) Gabby, can you you say your full name and just a brief sentence about what you do and who you are? Yeah, sorry. Again, like COVID killed my social skills. <laughs> it killed all of our social skills. Also, this is fake socializing, so. All right. Hi, I'm Gabby Darienzo. I'm a Toronto-based independent game developer and artist, best known for creating a little game called The Mortician's Tale, as well as working as an artist on bigger games like Celeste and Parkitect and Super Crush KO. I currently work with a Toronto studio called Drinkbox, who are the creators of games like Guacamelee and Severed. And I'm working as a senior artist with them on their new game, Nobody Saves the World, which is coming out soon. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. That's really all I do. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I love when you list a bunch of things and you're like, oh, that's it. That's all. And that's it. All I do is work and (laughs) that's it. I guess you're the first person that we've pulled from my pool of game developer people. So welcome. We're very glad to have you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Gabby, you were supposed to, you were about to go in on media. I think eating this cheese stick like makes me lose brain cells every time I take a bite of it. Uh, Did you say stick or steak? Yeah, as you can see, I'm holding a large Philly <laughs> yeah. cheese steak. Have you watched Fear Street yet, Leighton? No. Okay. So for anybody listening as well at home, Fear Street was like a series of novels by R.L. Stein. So kind of like the teenage version of Goosebumps. Like if Goosebumps was for kids, mm-hmm. Fear Street is for. I don't know, teenagers. And Netflix decided to make a, I want to call it like a mini series, but it's more like three movies in a series that they're releasing all at once. So the first one came out this past Friday mm-hmm. and it takes place in the 90s. The second part comes out this upcoming Friday. It takes place in the 70s. And the third one comes out the Friday after and takes place in 1666. Ooh. And it's all like, it's like a related story. Oh, okay. And it's super campy, teen slasher horror I don't want to spoil anything too much, but 
Um, I loved it. I thought it was great, <laughs> the first part of it. Oh, cool. It's like young adult level kind of movie. Yeah, it's more gory than I thought it was going to be. So like definitely teenagers and above, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like a mix of, I would say like it meets, I don't know, Stranger Things meets Scream mm. meets a little bit more gory than Scream is probably like the original 90s movie, not the shitty TV show, <laughs> <laughs> but got some feelings about that. <laughs> Also, if you're going to do the TV show, why are you going to change the mask? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't mess with my boy. They changed the mask? Yeah. What? Why? That's dumb. I know you're a big fan of Scream. And so I I was like, I'm sure I'm not offending anyone here by saying the TV show was not very good. (laughs) I never watched it. I have a friend who was in it. So there's, yeah. Fair. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm sure your friend was amazing in it. Yeah, she's great. (laughs) She's an incredible actress. Okay, so Fear Street, that is one. It's great. So only one part has come out so far. So far has been really fun. Really fun, very campy, very dumb little slasher movie. But it's like, I was thinking about this, that there's been a couple of like teeny kind of slasher films that have come out in recent years Mm -hmm. that have been genuinely good. Yeah. I'm thinking about like, um, Happy Death Day. I've heard people rave about this and the sequel. And I've been meaning to watch them because people say they're just great. I haven't seen the sequel, but the first one's pretty fun. I have strong negative feelings about it, but only because I hate fun. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. And it's one of those ones where literally everyone else is like, this is a super fun movie. And I just, I, I can't get into it. But the, the babysitter along those lines was really great. I love Samara Weaving. I did not like Ready or Not, but she's great. I wonder if you will hate Fear Street then, because... I don't know. I didn't see Ready or Not, and I did not see The Babysitter, so I have no idea like where it fits in on all those things. If you like that kind of stuff, The Babysitter is super fun. Didn't they make a sequel to it? I just like have not watched any new horror stuff. I think the last new thing I watched was St. Maud. I've maybe watched like four movies year to date thus far. I would love to hear your feelings about St. Maud because I haven't watched it yet. And everyone's like, A24 horror movies, it's automatically an Oscar movie. But I'm like, is what? it though? I always hear A24 like in reference to like, oh, it's all dark lighting, like trauma horror, which, you know, is my shit. It's St. Maude <laughs> is 100% like stylistically like a hereditary bank, but it is a tight, respectful 90. I love a 90 minute movie. It's super self-contained. There's some movies where you know that the inception of the idea was like one moment. They're like, okay, We want this moment. Visually, I know how we want it to look. Emotionally, we know how we want it to feel. How do we get to this moment? How do we justify it? For hereditary, that's the, mm, Mm -hmm. you know, losing your head bit. But with St. Maude, it's like it builds to that. It's such a slow burn and then it builds to that. I just thought it was great. Like the lead actress performance is awesome. Like super interesting character. It's just fun. I love some religious horror, you know? Mm-hmm. Just because I feel like everyone was either really traumatized by religion as a child or find great comfort in it. Oh, you must love this little indie horror movie I saw called The Nun then. Never seen it. Which I'm sure, Leighton, is is one, <laughs> you of, your, one of your favorites. It's religious <laughs> horror. You know, it, it's got everything you'd like in it. A scary nun. Have I discussed how much I hate The Conjuring series <laughs> on the show? Yes. Which yes. for those unaware, The Nun is part of the absolute shit-ass Conjuring movies. Oh, it's one of the prequels. You know what's really fun about The Conjuring? When you watch it, you're like, this seems like really pro-Christianity. And then you look into it and the filmmakers and the actors are all like, 
yeah, the greatest tool that these people have against demons is God. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. <laughs> like they're very explicitly made as Christian propaganda. Anything that also legitimizes the fucking Warrens, like it upsets me so much. So I don't know if we've talked about this on the show, but a past guest of ours, Jay Novella, started out in the Connecticut New England Skeptic Society. Essentially, they were like debunking the Warrens when they started out in Connecticut. And they started out in a large part to address these paranormal claims Yeah, that the Warrens were bullshitting around. And it's just complete crap. They have no evidence for anything. It's It really pisses me off that one of the most successful franchises of you know the last 10 years is based on a true story, which is complete bullshit. Yeah. Honestly, the more interesting movie would be like a Coen Brothers type thing about how they're just fucking scammers. Yeah. yeah. The last time that I visited my mom in New York, we went up to Amityville and like she took me to the house, uh-huh. which I feel very weird ethically about that kind of thing. But I wanted to see it and I didn't have much say in the matter because my stepdad was just like, yeah, we're going. But, you know, there's the bar around the corner that the guy, the, the son, whatever I forget his name, like went to and then back to the house. But they had to remodel the house like multiple times so it wouldn't have those distinctive windows on it so people wouldn't come do exactly what we were there doing. Yeah, But it's just like, yeah, the story is interesting enough when it's just a whole familial murder. We don't got to throw spirits into this. But the Ryan Reynolds Amityville horror really instilled <laughs> the fear of the times. Is it 313 or 3.33? And whenever it was that the guy did the murders, it's one of those. But I would wake up at 3 and be like, it's the murder time. You just gotta not get murdered for the next 10 minutes. I didn't even realize they remade it. So there was a recent remake of the original Amityville Horror with Ryan Reynolds. Really? <sighs> I mean, recent, like 2004, maybe. Fuck. It's really bad. After three original Amityville movies, is that right? Yeah. Wow. I had my first panic attack watching that movie as a child. The Ryan Reynolds one. Yeah, there's a jump scare where he's watching old footage in the basement. And I looked it up on YouTube and it's such a baby scare. But yeah, this sent me into like full-blown like panic attack hysterics. Oh, no. Yeah. Horror movies, they're great. (laughs) I think my first panic attack watching a horror movie was The Ring. That's a good one. (laughs) The American version, because I was like, I don't know, nine or ten or whenever I watched it. There's some pretty good scares, but like it was... A couple of jump scares where the shot is on the person who has been killed or possessed or whatever it is. Yeah, the closet one at the very beginning is a good one. Yes. Yes, that really got me in the theater. Yeah, yeah. and I had to leave the theater as like a child and yeah, like call my mom to pick me up and whatever. But then I ended up renting it like half a year later and like watching it at home. And then I fucking loved it. Yeah. And that like that was the thing that got me into more horror movies as a kid. Dude, me too. That was the exact one. Is I hated them my entire childhood because my mom would make me watch them with her. And then I was like, why would people be scared on purpose? And then when I was 16, <laughs> my friend was like, let's watch The Ring. And I was like, oh, fuck this rules. I want to be scared on purpose. Yeah. Right. Also, Naomi Watts, just like absolute champion. Yeah, she's amazing. I rewatched them recently because I'd never seen the original Japanese one. So I wanted to watch that one. And then I watched the American version. And this is probably controversial, but I liked the American version better. <laughs> or like it's different. Yeah. The Japanese version is very slow. American version is a good movie. It's not like a shitty film. I like it. It holds up. Yeah. 
Also, like the Gore Verbinski cinematography is like really, really great. I have the original Ringu on VHS and I've not watched it yet because like I started collecting VHS tapes a little bit before the pandemic, partially with like, oh, I can have friends over and we can watch creepy VHS tapes together for the experience. It's not the same if I'm alone. And so I have a bunch of tapes that I just haven't watched because I haven't had people in my apartment. Such as Ringu? Yes, such as Ringu. I also have the Animal Crossing anime, which I found on eBay, that I'm very excited to watch. Didn't know that existed. Wait, do they call it Anime Crossing? (sighs) (sighs) Anyway, speaking of Gore Verbinski, (laughs) did either of you see A Cure for Wellness? No. Oh, uh, no, sorry. I was thinking The Road to Wellville, which is a different thing. (laughs) Yes. Which is about the Kellogg of Kellogg's cereal, weird sanitarium. Oh, is it about how he's a pervert and doesn't want anybody to jerk off? Uh, Yes, in part. Wild. I feel like legally you have to eat a bunch of graham crackers before you start watching the movie. Yeah. So you're not horny at all, which (laughs) is what Kellogg would want. So what what is it? The cure for wellness? A cure for wellness. It's the most visually gorgeous, terrible movie I've ever seen. It's I have an entire folder of like almost every still from that movie because the cinematography and directing, like there is so much striking, gorgeous imagery. It's like color graded in that Gore Verbinski kind of way. It is nonsense and long. And it's so like ridiculously like trashy. Like the closest thing I could compare it to content wise is like Sucker Punch. Okay. Oh God. Yeah. It's very strange. I honestly recommend it just because it is such a wild ride and also visually just beautiful. Sucker Punch sucks, but I also loved it. Exactly. It's hot women with swords and Oscar Isaac is wearing eyeliner. So like literally what more could you want? Yeah. When I was like a closeted bisexual, I remember watching it in theaters and being like, I love this. Why do I love this? (laughs) It's that and like Jennifer's body that really feel like the closet bisexual movies where it's like, hmm, why am I so into this? Why have I watched this (laughs) 10 times in a row? This movie's good for some reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sucker Punch is the Zack Snyder one, right? Sure is. Yeah. (laughs) It's Zack Snyder and Babes with Swords. John Hamm, right? John Hamm is in it, yeah. Oh yeah, John Hamm's an evil doctor. I don't recommend watching it, but I also recommend watching it. Like, it's it's not yeah. good, but yeah. it's good. It's terrible. I feel like for queer people who aren't cis men, it's, there's something about the male gaze where it's like, okay, this is very misogynistic and I don't like why this happened, but also I'm attracted to women and I am enjoying this. <laughs> I'm so glad that you said that. When people talk about guilty pleasures... I'm always like, I don't really have a guilty pleasure. I'm totally open to talking about the things I like. Sucker Punch very often feels like a guilty pleasure because I don't want to tell people that I like Sucker Punch. (laughs) Because again, it's problematic as well in a lot of different ways. Oh. Yes. On like every level that a movie can be problematic almost. Every single way. But it is very pretty. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you about Mortician's Tale, which is how I first encountered you online because you made a really, really wonderful, like, unique death positive game that's very informative. Oh, thank you. And I feel like there's just like not enough death positive media. I think I've seen you speak about this, but for people who are unfamiliar with your work and for Brian, would you talk a little bit about, oh, I'm not used to asking real interview questions on this show. (laughs) Uh, Talk talk about your game. 
because now I remember you did a really great talk on it, right? Like, I think I was there for that. Yeah, I made a game a couple years ago with a team of collaborators and my partner called Amortition Sale. It's really weird when you ask questions like this, because my brain is like, marketing speak. I've spoken about this like a thousand times. It's like a yeah, script yeah. that automatically, and I'm sure you probably both have like a similar thing, where it's like, dream sure. daddy. Dream it daddy, a daddy, daddy simulator. simulator. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mortician's Tale is... Very short, like an hour-long, narrative-driven video game where you play as a mortician running a funeral home. And it's very chill, very death-positive. It's a lot more about, like, talking with families and going through the process of burials and embalmings and cremations and kind of learning about it. It was inspired by an L.A.-based mortician. Her name's Caitlin Doty. Oh, yeah. Smoke gets in your eyes, et cetera. I went to her her book reading a couple years ago when she put out the, uh, will my cat eat my eyeballs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I read that book because of your talk. Yeah. So I read her first book and that kind of inspired the game. And then I made the game. And that was the first game I ever kind of creative directed slash designed. Most other games I've worked on, I've been like the artist on or a artist on. Mm -hmm. But that was the first game that I was like, here's an idea for a game I have and I want to make it and like see it through and like work with people to make it. And so how long was the dev cycle on that? Maybe like a year. It's a pretty small game. So we were working on it part time while we were working on other things. Mm -hmm. So I think all in all was probably like actually maybe six months or so of like actual dev time. But yeah, it is a short little game. But it's also one of those things where I have not designed a game since it's been long enough that I'm starting to get the itch of like, yeah, I have all these ideas for games I would love to make that are a little bit too small for me to like make with my current company that I'm working at, but mm-hmm. it is a thing that I would love to do and like see get made. So I'm starting to kind of think about things I would like to do. One of them is a horror game, which is a really weird thing as like a person who enjoys horror medium. I've never made a horror game before because Mortician Style is not a horror game. It's very much like the opposite of that. It's a very like heartwarming moving, like, and it's so cute. Like seriously, the art direction is I mean, anybody who's listening to this right now, like, please just go by and play it. It's short. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's just great. <laughs> and it introduced me to the concept of a cremulator, which is like one of my favorite words now. Yeah. <laughs> there were so many things I learned while doing research for that game that were like mind-blowing. As people who, you know, I think all of us have probably experienced death in some way or another and have had to go to funerals or like know what funerals are. There's so many things that we don't really know about. It's not really talked about in the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting to learn about these things and kind of understand the Western death industry more, which is also like useful Mm -hmm. for us to know. Yeah. But also I feel like I'm probably on a watch list because like things I had to Google (laughs) are like how to pull out a pacemaker and YouTube is a surprisingly (laughs) good source for the videos on those things. Also really gross. But like, yeah, Yeah. the next thing I'm kind of thinking about is like very much a different type of thing where I really enjoyed making like the very soft, very like heartwarming game. Now I'm like, I want to make something like weird and gross and fun. (laughs) I appreciate that we've had the same arc of like making the sweet, (laughs) cute thing and then being like, "Eh, fuck this, just make it it fucked up. Yeah. Like I was doing research last week where I totally had the like, oh, I'm on a list feeling because I kept repeatedly Googling like, Eyeball melt and fire, eyeball (laughs) pop and fire, traumatic eye injury, traumatic eye injury images. (laughs) There's a lot of crazy shit that can happen to your eyes. Yeah, it turns out. <laughs> that's one of those things that's cool when you start learning about like bodies and death 
processes and stuff like that, where it's just like, oh, we're all the same meat. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just meat in there. Sentient meat. And it's fascinating, and it's also like some people are more comfortable talking about it than others. And so it's always interesting, mm-hmm. like, gauging. Even in, like, this conversation, it's like, okay, who, how comfortable are people talking about this? Like, how much detail can I go into about a cremulator? Here you can go into <laughs> infinite detail. There's no ceiling. Yeah, I mean, I'm a real gore-oriented, like, gross shit person. I mean, and not even to imply that death is inherently gross, but often it's really gross. It sure can be, yeah. But it's normal that it's gross and weird. Like, for a thing that is one of the only things that every person who has ever lived has in common, we have a lot of weird hang-ups about talking about it. We sure do. Yeah. It's very Western as well. Like, thinking about mm-hmm. and talking to friends who are not in North America, or not even North America, just literally like the U.S. and Canada, right? Anyone else is a lot more open to it because it's part of their culture. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a really weird thing that we do as Canadians and Americans is like, just be very, very, very quiet about it and like very private about it. And like when it does happen, yeah. we just like have no knowledge about it. And we're very much like, okay, yeah. grandma died, off you go. And then we are not involved with the death process, even though the person that we loved is like the person that's being taken. Like, it's really weird. We have like a really weird relationship with it. We're also used to, I think, especially in US, Canada and Western Europe, most of us don't live near our families anymore. And we grow up and then move out and we're somewhere else. And when bad stuff happens or someone dies, it's not right next to us mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. A lot of that is now the kind of standard thing is to grow up. You know, most people will go to college these days and then move to a totally different city. And so you're maybe raising a family or whatever completely far away from any relatives. Yeah. And that's not true in most of the world. Most of the world, you know, kind of stays right around where they're born. Their whole family's right there. And you see birth, death, and everything else right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And it is like that big intersection of family and religion and money. It takes so much work to like do the end of life stuff and arrange a funeral. And that shit is so, and this is one of the reasons your game is great. It's so prohibitively expensive where people just get slapped with like, not only are you dealing with grief, you're dealing with how expensive coffins are (laughs) and like how this is bad for the environment. I don't want to spoil your game, but the turn at the end with like, sustainability is like really beautiful and really powerful and also something I didn't know anything about until playing the game. Yeah, that was a big thing we wanted to talk about. And also like the game very much, it's very (laughs) anti-capitalist, which is like, was not one of the main goals of the game, but it ended up being a big part of it. In the writing process, it's a discovery of like, oh, what is this also actually about? Because clearly like any creative project you discover the thing that you've been ruminating on and are like able to put words to it and like articulate like, oh, this is a thing that was bothering me that Mm. I didn't realize consciously was bothering me or that I'm dedicating a lot of energy to. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think with Mortician's Tale in particular, that was a big part of it. And a lot of it comes from, I have a lot of friends, mainly in North America, but also in Australia that are funeral directors. And a lot of their gripes about the industry were like, I don't know about the States, but in Canada, there's no set price for things like coffins or urns. Oh, no. So every funeral home can just kind of make whatever price they want up. It's a business. Basically, what I'm trying to say is it is a business. And because it's a business they make money off of us not knowing anything. Like us being too afraid to talk about it 
means that these corporations make money. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying that like every funeral home is like, they're all about the money, they're evil. But like, obviously they do take care of our dead and like have some sort of empathy. But there is still this like business part of it that makes it really sus. Having gone through several deaths now in, in my family, the thing that really is in your face when you're in a funeral home, at least to me, is the constant upselling. Yes, yeah. And in a way that is done... You know, they're kind of acting like it's out of empathy or if you're a decent person, you'll want your dead relative to have the best. It's fucking awful. It just preys upon every insecurity you have. And at the same time, you have no idea what a re- for exactly the reasons you say, Gabby, what a reasonable price for any of this is. Mm-hmm. So not only are you at their mercy, they're also, it feels like at the time, kind of taking advantage of you at probably one of the worst moments of your life. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, in Hollywood on Sunset, how there is a big children's hospital and right Mm -hmm. next to it is the massive church of Scientology. Yep. Every time I drive past it, I'm like, they're totally like see grieving parents, parents who are dealing with children who have chronic illness. Like that's an easy mark. It's like spotting an injured sheep and being like, all right, I'm going for that one. Yeah. And with conflating the like, love and grief with objects. It feels like a really grim inverse of like, this ring is how much my love to you is worth. Please marry me. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. The most fucked up thing for me is that if you want to have the skull of your dead loved one, you legally cannot have it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I just want my family to have my skull and like put it on the mantle and be like, grandma's watching you. (laughs) Grandma's always watching. It's also really weird too because we have more space here, but in countries especially like over like in Japan or like anywhere that's like very, very small, they don't have room to bury their dead, right? And so some countries, you can't bury people if that's like part of your religion or whatever, you can't do it because no space. Or I can't remember what country it is, but you rent a plot for your deceased person and it's like, okay, you, you have whatever, 10 years. And then when that 10 years is up, that's it. Grandma's getting dug out. <laughs> You're getting evicted from your coffin. Wow. Get out. And so it's really cool and fascinating to see how everybody all over the world deals with it. But it's also like kind of fucked up that we have a lot of space here in America and Canada, especially Canada. We have so much space that we do not use. Yeah. And it's just really weird that like we're still so specific about like, okay, no, but you have to pay $30,000 for a cement plot and you know you can't just put your body in the ground no you can't do that you have to pay this much money to do it and it's just like no (laughs) yeah but thank god we have these from the past right because at the same time i don't want to take up space with my buried body or anyone else's but having cemeteries from hundreds of years ago is like the best yeah that's true i do love cemeteries (laughs) it is a very powerful beautiful thing yes and you get a real sense of Look at all these people who were here and their names and their, you know, a little bit of their personality can come through on their, you know, gravestone, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I feel very conflicted about it because there's too many people and you can't put them all on the ground. But I'm really happy we have that from the people in the past when there was enough room to 
to have that be a sensible thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how cemeteries developed too, because it used to be like, here's the church and here's the graveyard right here. And it's the exact same problem of like space because there would be grave robbers who would just like kind of come in and like there was a whole phenomenon where they would take skulls and like bowl with them and shit. Yep. And so people would come in, be messy. There would be a storm. There would be waste. Obviously there's bacteria and like all this stuff. And it's like, I don't want to go to church and see all of our dead relatives. Yeah. And so it kind of like migrated into this like mental, emotional distancing from the concept of death, Mm -hmm. where we're going to continue to shove this. You die in a hospital, you go to a funeral home, you die in hospice. Like you're not going to die at home surrounded by people. Like it just further increases that gulf of like, this is completely taboo. We're not even going to talk about it. We're not even going to say so-and-so died. We're going to say they passed. Passed away, Yeah. yeah. It makes it feel very clinical. It sure does. Even though it is kind of icky, the whole history of cemeteries or graveyards, I will say I'm kind of in the same camp as you, Brian, where it's like, I do still love seeing cemeteries and graveyards. Yeah, death is, uh, I get why people don't talk about it. It's scary. Socially, I imagine that cultures that are more accepting of death, that's got to be like socially, emotionally healthier, right? Like it's one thing if you don't talk about it, this is a dreaded thing. I've been reading a lot of like Buddhist and Zen stuff lately and sort of the attitude of like looking forward to death is really interesting in terms of just like, oh, this is a continuing cycle, like regardless of the reincarnation of it, but just like everything is an emotional flow and an energy flow and whatever it is, it's rolling into the next thing. It's not necessarily like a tragic, terrible thing. Like it's just a thing that's going to happen. There's a lot of that in this book that Layden and I read recently, The Changing Light at Sandover. It's an epic poem. I'd say it's 90% Ouija board stuff. It's this incredible epic poem, but there's a lot of discussion of the afterlife and the different levels and reincarnation. And it's very hard to describe in a coherent way, but because it's also very, very long. Very long, very dense. Very dense. But it's very like, oh yeah, I guess that guy died. Oh, there there is on the Ouija board now. Cool. Hey, what's up, dude? Yeah. It's like their friends being like incorporated into the dialogues. And it's really cool how like plainly they state like, we don't know how spiritual this is and how much of this is our subconscious projecting things. Yes. But I love that they acknowledge, regardless, it doesn't matter because either way, we're clearly processing something. We're clearly tapping into something in our subconscious. Like, yeah. whatever it is, this is meaningful regardless of where it's coming from, which love I love to see. Yeah. Is it like segment time? I don't know how far in we are. I think it's segment time. Yeah. Cool. All right. Our first segment, Gabby is a pop culture recommendation segment. We just get to talk about a book, game, movie, whatever, something we've experienced recently that we like. It's called What's Poppin', and the theme song goes right here. Boom. Okay, so we'll add that in post. Oh, I was hoping I'd get to hear it, but I'll listen to it later. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, you can listen to it on the show. Do I have it? Actually, can I play it? Let's see. Can you hear this? Brian, I'm going to kill you. What? <laughs> What's poppin'? Can you hear this? What's poppin'? Could you hear that? Beautiful. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. What's up, Layden? I'm just, I don't think you've ever actually played it when you said you were going to play it on the show. I'm not sure if audio listeners are- Wait, wait, wait. What, what are you talking about? I'm not doing this this week, Brian. I'm not doing this whole bit this week. I click week. the I'm, button and it played. That's, there's nothing, you know, I click a lot of stuff every day on the internet and it does the thing it's supposed to do and this was no exception. I don't understand why this is a- surprising occurrence to you. 
I, the gaslighting development on this is really great. I think that's a fun bit. And he's about to be like, no, Leighton does this thing every week that's really uncomfortable. It's not I would true. Never, I would never say that. <laughs> Fuck off. Every week, Brian's like, here's the theme song. It's really great. It's the best theme song you've ever heard. And then he doesn't play it. And is like, okay, guess what did you think of that? And it's really uncomfortable every week. And then I get performatively mad about it every week for comedy purposes. And mm-hmm. we almost escaped. You got me. <laughs> What's popping for me? It's a book. It's called The Deepest Well by Nadine Burke Harris, which is a book that is about the physiological and biological effects of childhood trauma that kind of goes into, are you guys familiar with like ACE scores, like adverse childhood experiences? Mm -hmm. Basically, this book is kind of going off of that research of essentially, depending on how much trauma you experienced as a child, it astronomically increases the rate at which you will have health problems later in life by like 200%, 400%, 200%, 400%, like lung cancer, stroke, heart attacks. Oh my God. Everything. And that's not even touching like the mental illness or like behavioral stuff like alcoholism and all those kinds of things. So like it's a scale of 10. Everything above four is like, it's nuts because what this book is about is how like early effects to stress and like having cortisol overloading your system all the time when you're very young and still developing can completely stunt. It changes the way your hormones are made. It changes the way your like neurological pathways work. And, you know, with the release of the DSM-5, which I forget, maybe a decade ago, but basically there was a really big movement of therapists and psychologists trying to get CPTSD, like complex PTSD, which is PTSD that's not from one discrete event, but from a series of events such as like prisoners of war, or especially in this case, like child abuse. And trauma-informed therapy care is so important because there are a lot of mental illnesses that you can have trauma and you'll be displaying symptoms that are because of the trauma that look like bipolar or BBD or ADHD and all these other things. And so a lot of times if you get prescribed, let's say SSRIs for whatever, it's not going to treat the fact that you're dealing with trauma that rewired the way that your body processes stuff. So by complex PTSD, People made a really big movement to get it into the DSM-5 to have it classified as like an actual diagnosis you can get and treat. And the DSM kind of looked over it and didn't do it. And so that has like reduced the level of trauma-informed care that people have gotten for a long time. But it's clearly like the evidence and the studies and the research about it just really show like it is a huge like health epidemic. Like it's awful, the effects that it has on the system. This book gets very interesting about how like lower income areas or especially you know, places where there are a lot of violence, like the incidences of these are so much higher. And so Mm. people will correlate like poor adult health with like, oh, but it's because they're all dealing with trauma. Anyway, this book's fascinating and a very easy, like short read. So I highly recommend, especially for people who like have experienced trauma. When I first started learning about this stuff, I was super surprised to be like, oh, that's why I'm in pain all the time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's an important thing, especially to talk to your doctor about, because not every doctor is going to be like, did you have some trauma as a child? What's up? And like that makes a huge difference in the way that you get treated. Yeah. So yeah, it's the deepest well. Yeah. Cool. Gabby, what's popping? Okay, so I'm going to recommend a game which came out like five years ago, but I only played it recently. And that game is Bloodborne. Did you guys play Bloodborne at all? No. I have not, but I've heard many people (laughs) rave about it. Yeah. I'm not gamer enough for Bloodborne. Yeah, me too. Exactly the same. The art direction is just... Is it awesome? Yeah, and it's one of those things where for a really long time, 
With other kind of Dark Souls-like video games, the whole conversation around these games is that it's very, very difficult. These games are very, very hard. Right. If you want to enjoy these games, you need to get good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, that yeah. always put me off of playing these games because I was like... Same. Oh, you got to be a real gamer to like be good at these or whatever. But I have a lot of queer friends who were like, no, listen, Bloodborne is really good. Put some time and effort into it. There's like guides on the internet to kind of walk you through the first little bit to tell you like, oh, hey, it's going to be easier if you use these weapons or you could look at these things for these hints. And so I ended up getting really into it. And now I love it. It's like one of my favorite games ever. Oh, I played yeah. through the whole thing. And then I ended up like finishing it and replaying it again. And I think the thing that made it different for me is partly because the theme of Bloodborne is like the rest of Dark Souls is like all medieval and dragons and shit. Mm -hmm. And Bloodborne is more like horror. It starts out with like werewolves and vampires and slowly evolves into a different kind of horror, which I won't spoil because I do think people should play this game. But it ends up being just really interesting and like I don't know, more complex than I thought it would be. And it's very beautiful. There's a lot of like just really cool queer themes in it that I was not expecting. And that kind of makes sense why all my queer friends are specifically into Bloodborne and not like other Souls games. I was going to ask, do you find that there is a higher incidence of queer people who are really into body horror? Yes. Because that is something that I super connect to. And I know so many people who connect to it because I feel like there are so few things that express like issues with your own sexuality and gender than body horror does because it is the true like exemplary example of like, this feels alien to me. Something that I don't understand is happening. Like I'm not being accepted. Like all that stuff, it feels very like cathartic. And I feel like most of the queer people I know like really gravitate towards body horror. Yes, I think you nailed it on the head. And every single queer person I'm talking about is non-binary or genderqueer, gender fluid, who are like yeah. bloodborne. Bloodborne is the game. Hmm. Yeah, I can totally see it. I can totally empathize with it. I don't know. It's cool. It's really, really sick. And like, especially for anyone who may be intimidated by these kind of games. I think the thing that helped me kind of get over it is someone described it as a roguelike. Like, you're supposed to die a lot. Okay. That's the whole point of the game. Mm. Well, now I'm in. <sighs> There's the death positivity. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I get to die a lot? Sweet. <laughs> or when you're okay with dying a lot in the game, then it's not that big of a deal when you do die. And so it's like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. I don't know. It ends up being less stressful. Yeah. It's not like permadeath. It's like video games. You die and then you do it again. That's how games work. I've been replaying Cuphead recently, oh, which is yeah. exactly the same thing. We're like, you just have to know that you're going to fucking suck at this and die a million times. And that's just part of the process. I think it's an important skill to suck at things. Yes. Like genuinely, I'm not being facetious at all. I think that it's amazing to suck at stuff, especially if you're in a creative career or anything that's like skill performance based. Like yeah. being bad at shit is really good for you. And I think about this a lot with my seven-year-old because video games are a very low stakes way to teach perseverance and not being great at something the first time you do it. Yeah. So with her, especially with a video game, unless it's something I really think she's not capable of doing, I'll be like, honey, just keep trying. I'm not going to help you with this. Like, you're a very smart kid. I want you to try to figure it out more. And more often than not, like much more often than not, she gets it after she keeps trying. And I totally agree with you, Layton. It's a great way of being like, look, not everything comes naturally, and sometimes you just got to grind away at something until you get good at it. Especially if you're generally 
perfectionistic as I am. Perfectionism is really debilitating and is yet another thing that will kill your body. Yep. It's like picking up instruments has been really great for me because those are hard and they take years to master and like you're just going to sound like shit, but it's still fun and then it makes the progress more rewarding than stuff that you're like instantly good at, which feels like you've, yes. you know, there's a curve as you get like intimate with it. Like there is an intimacy with failing mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. Physical fitness, by the way, is also another great thing for this, where you can, like, (sighs) get better at something in a very measurable way. And I'm far from, like, you know, gym rat kind of dude. No, you're always talking about how you're a huge gym rat. You're always saying it. Just getting swole, you know, working out. (laughs) I do exercise regularly, but, you know, I've never been, like, live at the gym type dude. But in a brief phase I went through where I was doing, like, heavier lifting, it's amazing. You just set these goals and you watch yourself get better. And you're like, I couldn't do this two weeks ago, and now I can do it. It's amazing. I think it's great, especially for kids, to find these scenarios where you can like see improvement, especially at the beginning. Yeah, I think you bringing up physical exercise is like the perfect base example of that because everything is a muscle. You have to work out the muscle. I mean, as we're talking about, it's hard going back out into the world after a year of being inside. But it's like when you don't work out a muscle, it's going to get weaker. And like it just takes... Doing it over and over. And I read a thing recently in a book. I have no idea what it was because I'm always reading like five books at a time. I don't mean that as a flex. I just, uh, thoughts, reading things a lot. Clearly, thoughts. This is why I forgot what I was saying. Uh, Everything's a muscle. (laughs) Everything's a muscle, but it's like positive experiences beget positive experiences. Negative experiences will cause you to have more negative experiences, which yep. obviously is a big generalization. But if you have the negative experience, you're going to be like, oh, this went shitty last time. It's going to go shitty again. And then that becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I feel like we're all having that going back out. Like every conversation I have, everyone's like, this is hard and I'm more stressed out. And I thought that I would be so excited to go see people and I am, but also my anxiety is terrible and I don't know what I'm doing. So at least we're all getting our social gains together. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Bloodborne. Brian, <laughs> what's popping? What's popping for me this week is, well, speaking of queer media, I am far from a huge Ryan Murphy fan, although I like some of what he does. But he has a new series he EP'd on uh, Netflix called Halston about the designer. And uh, it stars Ewan McGregor as Halston, who was a very influential designer in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it's fucking great. It's like five episodes, I think. The problem with all Ryan Murphy shows is they go completely off the rails. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? No one would do that. Come on, idiot. (laughs) American Horror Story being the worst example of this, or best, depending. Because it just makes (laughs) no sense. There's no stakes to anything. Random shit just happens all the time. It's like, hey, aliens, Nazi doctors, uh, what about that? What if that happened? What if we're just... (sighs) Just throwing everything in. But this Halston series it doesn't have enough room to go off the rails Mm. and it also has an amazing central performance by ewan mcgregor and i just cannot recommend it highly enough it's an interesting look at the fashion world of new york in primarily the 70s and 80s so main characters include i can't remember her name krista rodriguez who plays Liza Minnelli, who's a very close friend with Halston, and she's a big part of the show. That woman is incredible, just incredible performance. Great character actors throughout the whole thing and a really fun period setting. There's a lot of stuff in Studio 54, 
There's interesting art and fashion stuff in it. I just love the performance. Also, because of the time period, you can probably guess there's a lot of AIDS crisis stuff happening. And in fact, Halston died of AIDS, you know, in the, I think, early 90s. I loved it. It was recommended to me by a friend who was like, look, I know what you're going to say. It's Ryan Murphy. But in this case, this is one of the ones where it's like the OJ thing that Ryan Murphy did every once in a while. American Crime Story. I didn't realize he did that. Yes. So there were two seasons of American Crime Story. There was OJ and then Gianni Versace. The Versace one was horrible. Just boring. It took way too long. Really flabby in terms of the writing. I got three episodes in and I was just like, this is dumb. I hate it. But when Murphy hits, it hits hard. And this is probably the best Murphy thing I've ever seen. I loved it. Can't recommend it highly enough on Netflix. Halston. Cool. We'll check it out. Fabulous. All right. That's what's popping. Let's move on to our final segment. I'm going to burp first. And now that I said that I'm going to burp, it's not going to happen. All right. Time for (laughs) I was waiting for it. Yeah. Time for our final segment. This is called Peaches and Lemons, which is one part petty grousing and three parts gratitude exercise. And that theme song goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? It's a good theme song. If you press play one more time, I will Okay, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Gabby, can we get that clean? What did you just say? Can we get another take of that? Can you say that again? It's a good theme song. Thank you. All right. We're going to start with lemons, which is a, you know, mild bummer that you want to complain about. So we'll each do one lemon. Who's got a lemon? All right. I'm going to go first here. So Audrey had a cold this week for the last couple of days. And she's just been in a fucking shitty mood because she has finally realized that your body can completely betray you. And it's been honestly really funny to watch, but it is also not great to deal with a child who's just in a bad mood. So she woke up on Saturday with like a runny nose and she was just like, my nose hurts. What's going on? And then just all day, just grumpy and like lashing out for no reason. And it's very annoying to deal with a completely irrationally angry child who just will not cooperate or listen to you at all. So that's the lemon is it's just like kids, you have a cold, like, I'm sorry, but you just take care of them and they're going to be mean to you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, you know, go take a shower. No, I don't want to. It's like, honey, it's going to help you feel better. Just go take a shower. No. But the steam will help your nose. I don't want to. And it's like, okay, I'm, uh, uh, you know, being a parent is entirely trying to help your kid and then having them be mad at you. (laughs) But it's just so funny to watch this little kid who, I can't even remember the last time she had a cold. It's been a long time. Even pre-COVID, kid just did not get sick very often. Did you not go to a party on Saturday and immediately tell everyone Audrey has COVID? (laughs) I did do that, yes, of course, because <laughs> um, I thought it was funny. You know, it's a good bit that everybody loves when everyone grouses about it on Sunday at a party on Sunday night. <laughs> I said it to one person as a very clear joke, which I acknowledged as such at the time, by the way. It's not my fault people don't understand comedy, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's clearly not COVID. You just got a runny nose and COVID. All right, great lemon. Gabby, do you have a lemon? I guess my lemon is 
I don't know like when this happened throughout COVID, but there was a point where I was like, fuck social media. And I deleted a bunch of my social media that I wasn't using. So like nice. I deleted Facebook finally. Fuck Facebook. Um, had like an extra Twitter, an extra Instagram account. I deleted those. I just deleted ArtStation, deleted whatever. But I still have Instagram. I still use it for art. I have a personal one that like I don't update ever. And I've always felt like the last few years, especially like it's just gotten so like gross and I don't want to be on there. Yeah. I don't even care about updating it. And like most of the time I don't even see my friends posts. It's all just like ads. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know that some of us here have had worse experience with Instagram than others, especially recently. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm so sorry. But I feel kind of like a dick being like Instagram. No, literally in a year of podcast, I feel like we spent every episode talking about how social media sucks, which I think is cool and refreshing to hear from internet creators who are like, yeah, this is my job. It's a terrible platform. Yep. It is. I don't really get anything out of Instagram. A lot of my work comes from Twitter, which is a really weird thing, but a lot of game devs on Twitter and a lot of people like get work from Twitter, which is weird. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not really affected by Instagram too much, which is why this is a lemon and not like an actual major thing. But yesterday or two days ago, Instagram was like, we're changing to a video platform. We're going to be the new TikTok. And I was like, oh God, (laughs) ew, why? If I'm going to post a video, I'm just going to do it on my TikTok. So that was kind of like the final thing for me where I was like, I think I'm just going to delete my Instagram. This fucking sucks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is cringy at this point. And I feel bad that I don't see my friend stuff. I feel like I just need a button that's like unfollow all. And then I'll add the 15 people whose stories I want to see and be like, all right, I'm done. I did this on Facebook, essentially. I felt like I couldn't delete it because I have some old, old relatives who that's the only thing they use. So that's my way of keeping in touch with them. And I unfriended like a thousand people on it. I kind of went through and I was like, all right, I'm just going to really whittle this down. And now what's happening to me is I'm getting those people re-friend requesting me. And I feel like a complete monster. And probably being like, why did Brian unfriend me? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yes. And I was just like, I just want to keep this small. Yeah. Now I feel bad about it. Fuck Facebook. I have a lemon. So as I've mentioned on the show, my freezer door was frozen shut. And on Friday, my lovely friend Allison came over to help me do some cleaning because I have a hard time asking for help. And I also am depressed. So cleaning is very difficult for me. So she is an angel and she brought me coffee and like helped me clean things up. One of those things I was like, hey, can you help me get my freezer door open? We spent, if you're my landlord and you're for some reason listening to this podcast, uh, the thing I'm about to say is false. But we were trying to rip (laughs) the drawer open. And so we were pouring like some boiling water on top to try to get the ice to melt. Because clearly it was like, oh, there's a big block of ice in here that's preventing it from opening. And we were like pulling it and pulling it and pulling it, trying to get it open. I leave the room for a second and then I hear, oh. And then I come back in and the drawers <laughs> hanging off the hinges. Oh, no. And there is a foot solid block of ice encasing the entire thing. Maybe a foot's an exaggeration, but like half the freezer. Fuck. Damn. And the door completely ripped like off the hinge. And so I immediately am like, Oh God, what do you even uh what do you even what do you even do? And so we unplug the fridge and then it's like, well, so I guess I just have to let all of the ice that's in my freezer melt. And so this was on Friday, right? Maintenance guy couldn't come until Saturday. And I was like, the maintenance guy is going to get here and he's going to take one look at it and be like, yeah, this is fucked. You need a new one. Sure enough, he was like, yeah, I can't fix this. You need a new one. A new one meaning a new fridge. 
Yes. He was like, well, you could try to get the part for the door, but I just looked it up and it's discontinued. So you could try to buy one used, but even then it might take forever to ship. Blah, blah, blah. This is a fridge that it came with the apartment, right? It is not your personal fridge. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, yeah, basically what you're going to have to do if you even want to get the door to close, you could probably end up using the fridge itself again, but you're going to have to let all of that ice melt and then maybe you can close it. So to set the scene... This entire weekend, my kitchen floor is covered in towels that are sopped like you step on them in the water pools, sopping yeah, wet. Okay. And even better is my apartment currently smells like rotting meat and fish because due to the large block of ice, it's been melting very slowly. But it's been melting so quick enough that the food is rotting and disgusting, but not fast enough for me to be able to disentangle it from the ice and take it out until this morning, which I just did, which is super fun pulling wet everything out of your freezer. Jeez. So that's where I am right now, needing a new fridge. And my floor is wet and it still smells like fish. Wow. That's my lemon. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And my window is still broken and the fly that I broke the window for is still here. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, that's my lemon. Fucking climate change. I have the freezer door open and there's the remnants of like the final couple of inches of ice hanging off the drawers. And I'm just waiting. Like I hit it with a blow dryer. I hit it with my hatchet. I tried like just ripping it off. Do you have a steamer? Like a clothes steamer? I do, but it's just going to have to melt naturally. And for some reason, even though it's hot as fuck, it's going as slow as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. But that does mean I get a new fridge. Yeah, that's nice. It's kind of exciting. I don't know. Which you don't have to pay for. Well... We'll see. Hopefully not, yeah. (laughs) Because what I told the property manager was that, like, it was stuck, and so I tried to open it, and it just happened to rip off. Basically true. It's essentially true. Anyway, time for peaches. Yes. So we'll each do three peaches, which are things that are cool and fun and nice. I'll start. Peach number one, I went to a party that I discussed earlier at our friend Peter's place, and it was lovely to see a bunch of people I hadn't seen in a very long time. Did you get to see Jory? I did. We spent a long time talking. I didn't go to that party because I was babysitting my freezer because I was like, oh, surely this will happen faster than three days. And then I find out that Jory's there and that everybody got to hug Jory. Oh, I hugged the shit out of Jory. We specked out into different parties over the weekend. I was like, okay, there's two parties. I can go to one of these and not go insane. That's what I did. I went to one and Rachel went to the other. Yeah. And you went to the one Rachel went to. So... That was really fun. Uh, Second peach is my sister is coming into town from Jersey with her 12-year-old daughter. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I haven't seen her in whatever, a year and a half or something. So it'll be great to see her again. Last time I saw her daughter, she was 10 and now is like, is not a kid anymore. Is like, you know, more of a teenager-y, adult-y human being. I'm looking forward to seeing her too. Is Audrey excited? Audrey is excited, although my niece is just old enough where probably she's not going to want to play with a seven-year-old that much. So we'll see how it goes. But yes, Audrey is very excited whenever there are new people to talk at and she can show them her room and all her stuff. And yes, my third peach is then uh, Steph comes into town and then we go to Palm Springs for a week. And it's going to be lovely to go to Palm Springs in what is sure to be brutal weather because it's summer in the desert, but it's going to be great. So Hell yeah. Nice. That's it. Those are my peaches. Gabby, would you like to share some peaches? 
Sure. My first peach is now that we're double vaxxed, which took forever, and all of our friends are like just getting double vaxxed now in Ontario. A couple friends just got a puppy and <sighs> we got to hang out in the park with the puppy. We had like sandwiches and just hung out with them and their dog. And it's been so long since we've like just sat outside with friends and food and a puppy. It was just so nice. What kind of puppy? Some sort of hound mix. I'm sorry. I'm not doing a good job. I have no idea. (laughs) Like big ears kind? Yeah. Big floppy ears, but like tall. And she's like this big right now. And she's a baby. So she's probably going to be like very, very, very big uh, as an adult. I love that. So that was not very descriptive for listeners. Big dog is this dog. Yeah. I want to pet the pup. But just in general, it's been so long since I've just like seen people and like been outside because I've been pretty agoraphobic. Like actually genuinely have a developed agoraphobia. Well, this year is like, hey, do you already have agoraphobia? Well, your agoraphobia is actually correct. Like, yeah. yeah. It's one of those things where I did a bunch of research and like my therapist was like, I think this might have been a thing even prior to COVID. And it was like, oh, shit, you're right. There's there's already Mm. symptoms that I could like spot prior to COVID. And so it just made it worse. And so I have not really left the house at all. Sorry, not to complain before talking about my peach, but the peach is very, very like great because it's really nice to like actually be able to enjoy being outside. So it was really nice to be outside. Yeah, totally. Listen, there's no peaches without lemons. There you go. Yeah. That's <laughs> must coexist. If St. Augustine taught us anything. <laughs> my second peach is going to be my partner and I started watching Fast and Furious movies. I've never seen all of them. I've only ever seen like Tokyo Drift. That's the only one you've seen of all yeah. the Fast and Furious movies. You've only seen Tokyo Drift. The one that has nobody in it from the rest of the yes. films. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. the one I've seen. Um, wow. So we started watching one through six. We're on seven now. And uh, they're good movies they're kind of good right they're kind, they're kind of, of good fun movies they're really fun my tell me if this was your experience i also had never seen any of them until i don't know a couple of years ago and i was like all right well i'm gonna watch them in order i hadn't seen any. watch one it's like all right so that's pretty good watch two that's fine watch three tokyo drift is okay four is fine and then you watch five and you're like, what? This rules. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. What changed? They just went nuts. Okay. So I personally really like Tokyo Drift. It's a weird one. It has none of the original cast. It's on its own, but it does have some like really sick stunts. Yes, that's and, true. And like there's one character, his name's Han. Rules. He's a Korean guy. He's the best character in the series. He's so great. And they bring him back for a little bit of four and then all of five. And so five is great because the first four movies are like fine, but then the fifth movie, they bring all the best characters back. And suddenly that's where it goes between being like a movie about racing to be like a movie about heists involving sick car stunts. Shit. That's when they stop taking themselves so seriously. And it's a movie about like fun, dumb, like entertainment. Yes. Oh, The Rock is in it. Yes. When The Rock starts showing up, it's like, all right, here we go. (laughs) Yeah. There's a part where they have to break into a vault. And spoiler alert, I don't feel bad spoiling these movies because they're not really about the plot. It's more about the entertainment. They uh, have to, like, drag this fucking 6,000 pound vault through the city. By the way, through Rio. This is in Rio de Janeiro. So, (laughs) yes. Dragging it through wherever. It's just sick. What a sick movie. It's so fun. The following ones are like very, you can see that's when they start to get like really wild. They become superheroes. They stop being just like 
hey, these guys are incredible drivers, too. Oh, no, they're straight up superheroes. That's the movie where they abandoned the cop thing. Oh. The fir- other three movies are like, he's an undercover cop and he wants to be a good cop. And finally, in five, they're like, no, fuck it. No one's a cop. <laughs> fuck it. Do crime. Crime fun. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And so that's my other peach. And then my third peach is that we finally fucking found a PS5. So now we have a PS5. Nice. I had to follow three Twitter accounts and like two discords to fucking find one. It's harder to get than a vaccine, but now I have a PS5. So (laughs) congratulations. Very excited. What's the first thing you're going to play? We're playing the new Ratchet and Clank game right now, which is stunning. It is beautiful. Worth the PS5, worth it. Gene Park, former guest on the show, you know, games reporter at the Washington Post, was raving about it online. He said it was just incredible. Everyone's giving it like a 10 out of 10. And I was like, damn, all right, Ratchet and Clank. So my partner, it's one of his favorite game series. And so it's really fun watching him play through it and like enjoying it and also being able to like look around at things and be like, this game pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, those are my three peaches. Amazing. Layden. Peach us home. My first peach relates to my lemon in that, you know, I have not had like water heat in a month and I've had to shower at friends' places because they were doing plumbing work on my apartment that was built in the 20s. And so I have anxiety and don't like making phone calls. And so I have simply just not fixed it or had somebody to come and fix it. But while the guy was there like, yeah, your freezer's fucked, I was like, well, hey, can you fix my water heater, please, then? And he did. And so I took my first hot shower in my own shower. And now I'm back to consensual cold showers, which I love very much. When I'm being forced to take a cold shower, no. When I willingly choose to turn it to full ice and just put my head under it, that's peak human experience. That's pretty great. My second peach is at the party I was at last night. There were like eight dogs Like everyone brought their dog and they were all running around and they were all beautiful. There was like older Sheba, Vernon's dog, Red. There was Henry and Chica and maybe, I brought maybe. Was Jerry there? Ethan's dog, Spencer. Jerry was there. Jerry had the most puppy energy of anyone. That dog is a machine. Yeah, a lot. And maybe is weird with other dogs, but loves people. So she was just going lap to lap, people holding her. Was a beautiful thing to witness, just being surrounded by dogs at all times. It was wonderful. And then my third one is Instagram related. Someone commented on the picture that I'd posted to announce our Stay Safe, Come Hard Black Metal shirts and was like, I saw a guy at the gym with this shirt and I thought it was a band shirt. And I was like, you have to tell me more about this. And he was like, yeah, I didn't know it was a podcast. I asked him what band it was because I like finding new metal bands. And then he told me what it said. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's so good. That's so great. The exact intended effect of that design. So couldn't be more pleased about it. It's amazing. So those are my peaches. And that brings us to the end of the episode. So Gabby, you've been a truly wonderful guest. It's fucking amazing to see you. And I can't wait for the next GDC where hopefully we can hang out in the speaker's lounge again. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Where can they get Mortician's Tale, which I'm simply demanding that everyone who is listening play? Yeah, sure. Where can we find you? So I'm on Twitter, TikTok, and begrudgingly Instagram at Gabby Darienzo. And uh, Mortician's Tale is available for PC Mac through Steam and Itch.io, which are PC gaming platforms, as well as on iOS for your iPhone and iPad. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I didn't know about that. That's great. All right. Everybody, thank you so much for being here on yet another wonderful week of Late Night. 
I hope you're all well and that Wait, you're sorry, sorry before before we finish I do have one quick thing I wanted to uh, to say <sighs> what's popping <laughs> what's popping I hope that everyone out there is well and are vibing thriving and surviving and as always stay safe and come hard that's the end of the episode Brian what what's Goodbye. <laughs> What's poppin'? Bye. Okay, goodbye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>